Let's begin with a word of prayer, shall we? Uh, Father, we're just grateful to come into your presence tonight to um, share with each other, uh, to look together at your word and to uh, hopefully better understand it. Grateful for this church in Philadelphia who uh, you had nothing but commendation for, Lord. Um, they did some things right, and we want to look at that carefully and think about emulating that in any way we can. And um, so just guide us through that tonight as, as we look here now. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're in Revelation chapter 3, and we're starting the Church of Philadelphia. It's verse 7. We'll just read the text since we're starting a new church here, and we'll begin. So Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7. And to the angel of the Church of Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Philadelphia. Philadelphia means love for the brethren. And you probably learned that in grade school when we talked about Philadelphia, the town, right? Brotherly love, something like that. Here's a little on it. Located on a hillside about 30 miles southeast of Sardis, the city, which is modern Elishaher, it was founded around 190 B.C. by Attilus II, king of Pergamus. His unusual devotion for his brother earned the city its name, Brotherly Love. The city was an important commercial stop on a major trade route called the Imperial Post Road, a first century mail route. Although scripture does not mention this church elsewhere, it was probably the fruit of Paul's extended ministry in Ephesus. Let me just read you out of Acts 19. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Okay, so probably Paul's ministry there spread to uh, Philadelphia. In our epochs of church history, this little flyer I gave you last week, Philadelphia fits during the 18th and 19th centuries, okay? And there just there were mighty revivals and great missionary movements during that time period. And just read a few things here to jog your memory a little bit. 
Well, without going into a bunch of details, but we got Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, uh, John and Charles Wesley started the Methodist Church. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, D.L. Moody, he he worked up right to the end of that time period. Worldwide missionary expansion out of Europe. Uh, I had a great chart in my. I got a couple books on um, church history. Two really nice big books. And one of them had a great chart on just showing the expansion during this time period, mostly out of Europe and then later out of the United States. A worldwide missionary expansion out of Europe, really the United Kingdom, mostly, then the USA. Uh, think of names like William Carey, Hudson Taylor, uh, a bunch of Bible societies got going, were printing Bibles. Uh, William Wilberforce, David Livingston, just some of the names that people that went out during those times as missionaries and societies. So a lot was going on, and we'll see probably some of the reason for that here as we move through this book, or church, I guess I should say. So, verse 7, starting here. To the angel, or to the pastor of the church of Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. So here's our salutation, the Holy One and the True One. And we want to use, you know, always use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Let's turn over to Hebrews 8. Hebrews has some things to say about Holy Ones and True Ones. I think it'll be a little bit helpful for us. Hebrews 8, verse 1. We're looking at this salutation, which in each salutation, as we've looked through them, it's, it's a, a picture of God's authority to speak the things that he's going to speak to the churches. All right, Hebrews 8.1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, our Savior, a minister in the holy places, and we're talking about who is holy and true, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Remember, the original tabernacle that Moses sent up was a tent. Okay? It was a portable tabernacle, a portable temple, essentially. But it was a replica of what was in heaven. God showed him that on the mountain, that's what I want you to build, Moses. And he built a replica of what was in heaven. Our Lord ministers there in the holy places, in the true tent. He's holy and true. Only the holy and true one is able to minister in the true tent or tabernacle of the Lord. And then if you jump down to chapter 9, verse 11. When Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect or true tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So we see Jesus is our high priest, and, and he alone is holy and true. And this is, gives him the authority to speak to the churches. And while you're there, jump down to verse 24 as well in Hebrews 9. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And then another place where we find this holy and true is in, in Revelation 
and it comes from the tribulation saints, okay, those that are saved during the tribulation. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, sovereign is a real picture of authority as well, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, they recognize who he is and they cry out to him, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And uh, later on, we're going to be looking at that dwell on the earth. And every time we see it, it's negative. The earth dwellers are negative. And it's about nine times in the book of Revelation. Actually, I, I found a few others that I thought would fit the description. But those who are, are dwelling on the earth at that time. Okay, so only our Lord is holy and true. Holy and true is his very being. Guzik makes this point. He says, there are two ancient Greek words which might be translated true. One means true and not false. The other means true and not fake. The Greek word used here is for the latter, true and not fake, with the idea of real or genuine. Jesus is true in all of who he is. He is the real God and the real man. Holy and true in his very being. And then it goes on in our text, verse 7, who has the key of David and who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one will open. So, you know, what is the key of David? All the other salutations take something out of the first chapter. Okay, there's some sort of reference to the first chapter. The closest we have here is in, in chapter 1, verse 18. It says, the living one, and the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. And that's it, just that one word. There's the only reference to the first chapter that, that I can find in his salutations, okay? But the key of David, who opens and no one else will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. This is a, a quote pretty directly from Isaiah 22. If you want to go over there, Isaiah 22, verse 20, is where this, this comes from. And um, there was, uh, I'll just kind of give you a little preliminary of what's going on in this chapter. There was a guy named Shebna. He was basically prime minister under the king, and he was a lousy politician. Okay? And he was replaced or demoted. And Elikim was established and to take his place. And he's a type of the Lord Jesus, Okay. Elikim is going to be responsible and compassionate ruler with full authority. And he will be given the key of the house of David, controlling the royal chambers and choosing the servants in the royal household. Elikim will be firmly established in his position and will have complete authority in his sphere of service. Okay, so let's read the verse now. Isaiah twenty-two twenty. In that day, I will call my servant Elikim, and his name means God will establish, but God's going to establish him, the son of Hilakai. And Hilakai is the palace administrator at that time. Verse 21, And I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. Again, here we're still in a salutation. We're still looking about at the authority of Christ. 
and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judea. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. So who opens and who shuts? Here's what MacArthur says. This authority to admit or refuse admittance into the king's presence evidenced the king's great confidence in Elikim, who is a picture of Christ. Jesus applied this terminology to himself as one who could determine who would enter his future Davidic kingdom in verse 7 of our text. We're into our next verse now. Okay, and we're going to have more about this door in, in verse 8. But he says, I know your works. And I keep harping on this, I know. <laughs> I know, I don't. Because it's in all seven letters. Okay, let me just read this to you. He says, I know your works, Hebrews 4.13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The Lord just knows everything about us, and we must give an account to him. And everything about us is naked and exposed to him. It's important that we realize who... <laughs> We don't hide anything from the Lord. Everything is just naked and exposed before Him. And it has, to know that and to know that, to know that, which I keep stressing, is to hopefully cause us to walk a pure life. To know that He is watching everything I do. And remember, He's got a book on every one of us. <laughs> okay, He's keeping track. He knows us. And... We need to live life that way, knowing that. All right. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Paul used this expression at least three times, but here's three that I found, okay? And let's go to them, I think. 1 Corinthians 16, 8. He used the expression about an open door was available to him or something, okay? We're going to look at three of them. The Lord says, I've set an open door before you. No one is able to shut it. So Paul, in 1 Corinthians 16, 8, he says, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. So here we see he's expressing that there's a wide door of effective work. Okay? And then... Flip over to 2 Corinthians 2.12. We'll talk about all three of these when we get through them. 2 Corinthians 2.12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though the door was open for me in the Lord, and then Titus wasn't there, so he moved on. But he came to preach the gospel because there was an open door from the Lord. Okay. Then Colossians 4.3, that's our third one. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 3. He says, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. That's that word logos, okay? 
that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So all three times in expressing an open door, he's, he's talking about an open door for, for effective work, to preach the gospel, and for the word, the logos, you know, to go forward, to declare the mystery of Christ. And so all three times it's talking about evangelism. That's what's on the table when he mentions these open doors. Okay? When we think of you know, that logos, in the beginning, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He wants that logos to go forward, the Word of God to go forward. He wants to preach Christ, preach the gospel, and have an effective work. Here's what McGee says. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. This could be a door to the joy of the Lord or to the knowledge of the scriptures. I personally believe that this is a door to the knowledge of the scriptures, which means that if he opens the door, he intends for you to move in because he will open a door of opportunity for witnessing and for proclaiming the word of God. I believe that both go together. He's saying almost like there's two doors. <laughs> you go through the door for the knowledge of Scripture, and that opens another door for ministering, for sharing the gospel. That's essentially how McGee's putting it. And that's just McGee's thoughts on it. But if we remember back to our epics of world history, right? During this period of history, the written word began to get into the hands of common people. Okay? And literacy rate skyrocketed. I have this chart <laughs> that's fascinating, I think, of literacy rates. I, you probably can't see that from here, but it goes up at better than a 45-degree angle. Let me just tell you about it just a little bit. I, this was fascinating to me. This is literacy rate from 1475 to, to today, or 2015, and it's for Europe. So the printing press is in 1439, okay, about... 100 years before this chart takes off. So right around 1550 is when this thing just starts going up at this crazy angle. And the two lines that we're tracking here, the one is Netherlands that goes from about a 18% literacy rate in the Netherlands up to 85% by, let's say, 1750. Okay? But the United Kingdom one, which is interesting, it starts in about the same place, but it peaks out at 54% and flatlines for 200 years. Okay? Now, it's probably that in the United Kingdom it was just men that were learning. But in the Netherlands, apparently everyone was because it got up to 85%. And then at 85%, it tips over, but it keeps going up until it reaches 99% today or 99.9, .9 or whatever it is, you know. They all wind up pretty much at the top today. But, um, you know, the Puritans came out of the Netherlands. A lot of groups were in the Netherlands, in the Dutch. Calvinism got in there in the north of, of the Netherlands. Catholicism was in the south. I, I couldn't find, I was trying to find percentages of people, you know, I don't know what's populated the most, this or that or whatever. But I just thought it was interesting that in some of the reading I did, the, the Puritans were big on literacy, and they wanted 
both their men and their women to read because they wanted to be in the scriptures. And uh, it's fascinating these, the way it just took off. And of course it took time you know, for the, the Bible to get printed. I mean, it took a while. The printing press was you know, invented back in 1439, but you know, it takes a while for people to get lots of presses and lots of things getting going. It took some time to get on, but once it got going, it just took off. And I wonder, in my mind, if this isn't the door that the Lord threw open. It's like, I'm going to open a door and no one's going to close it. I'm going to get the Word of God, my Word, out. And it's going to go around the world. And, and it has. It's printed in how many languages? And it's the number one best-selling book of all times, the Bible. has been for ever, I think, because everyone wants a Bible. I mean, maybe in times past more than now. But I thought it was a fascinating chart about literacy. So the three things that came out of Paul was open doors, knowledge of the scripture, witnessing, and proclaiming the word with those open doors. That's what he was, what we see when we look at those verses. Okay. Oh, here's one other little fact I found. This was fascinating to me. Guy wrote a paper between 1500 and 1800, men were more literate than women, rich more literate than poor, town dwellers more literate than country folk, and Protestants more literate than Catholics, which that was the one that really, it's like, I'll bet, because you don't need a Bible to go to a Catholic church. You know, the priest does it all. But the Protestants took off with the Bible. And we saw this booming of missionaries and Bible societies and stuff. All right, enough of that. I think that's what the open door is, but that's me. We'll continue on. Here's what Morris says. Because Jesus had opened the door, he gets the glory for it. Neither wealth nor influence, neither promotional schemes, nor the eloquence of its pulpit, nor the harmonies of its musicians can give it an effective ministry, speaking of the church. The Lord alone has opened the door, and the Lord alone has given the increase. You always remember that. The important thing is whether or not we're getting the word out. You know, when there's an open door, are we giving the word out? He goes on and he says, I know you have but little power. And he's talking to the Philadelphia church. And they've got scriptures, and they're doing things right, but they don't have much power. And you think about the time frame here. We're coming out of the state churches, and, and we're going into, you know, little churches breaking off, breaking away from the state churches, breaking away from Catholicism or whatever. And they're just little churches, and there's all kinds of them. There still are, you know. I mean, we've got our denominations today. But it's really the little church, the independent churches, that are holding on to the word, it seems to me, for the most part. You know, there's still some groups that are somewhat. But Let's turn over to 2 Corinthians, looking at this little power. 2 Corinthians 12. Second Corinthians 12, 7. I know you have but little power, he says. And this is what comes to my mind. 2 Corinthians 12, 7, it's Paul speaking. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that were given to him by the Lord, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. This is Paul who heals people. <laughs> Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that he should teach me. I shouldn't say Paul heals people. He was used by the Lord to heal people. Okay. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And we're looking at little power. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So you see, you know, Paul's strong reliance on the Lord. I wrote this. Blaine is a little backcountry church out in the sticks with little power. But we are strong if we rely on God and his faithful word. You know, we just need to trust the Lord, be in his word, keep preaching his word. All right, continuing in verse 8. If you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So let's go over to 2 Timothy here. You have kept my word and not denied my name. 2 Timothy, this is of course a pastoral epistle. So it's Paul talking to young preacher Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. And there's that logos again. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but will have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Is that what's going on today? This, uh, but have itching ears? Your ears itch after you've listened to a podcast all day? Mine do sometimes. But you know, you think about it, everyone's listening to podcasts nowadays, and there's everything in the world out there to listen to. And you can just seek after anything you want to seek after, it's there. It's a guy I try and share with, but he's a UPS driver, I don't get much time with him. I always try and get a word in. Anyway, he mentioned the podcast he'd been listening to, and I thought, well, I'll listen to his podcast, see if he's listening to, maybe it can relate something to. Kook Radio? <laughs> I was like, are you kidding me? You're listening to that? <laughs> you know? But he just eats it up. His ears are itching for it. That's all I can say, you know? And uh, there's everything out there. When I first related itching ears to podcasts and me wearing earbuds most of the day, which I do, I just thought, well, Lord, you just knew what that was. I just totally related to podcasts in my mind. A day is coming. It's here. The church of Philadelphia lived in a way that was faithful to the name and character of Jesus. They were faithful. Barnhouse says this, The church of Philadelphia is commended for keeping the word of the Lord and not denying his name. Success in Christian work is not to be measured by any other standard of achievement. It is not rise in ecclesiastical position, it is not the number of new buildings which have been built through a man's ministry. It is not the crowds that flock to listen to any human voice. 
All these things are frequently used as yardsticks of success, but they are earthly and not heavenly measures. So the three keys of the Church of Philadelphia was evangelistic opportunity. I set an open door before you. They stepped through that open door. Reliance on God. You have little strength. They relied on the Lord. And then faithfulness to Jesus. They kept his word and they did not deny his name. Those are the three, three keys to success for the, for the Philadelphia church. All right, continuing on, um, verse 9 in our text, Revelation 3, 9. Behold, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Let's just look at that part first. Um, same thing was said of Smyrna. Okay, um, synagogue of Satan as well in the Smyrna church back in chapter 2. Uh, false religion has always been a, an antagonist against the church. Okay, um, And there's lots of false religions in it and give the church a lot of grief. These persecuting Jews were Jews in name only. Okay, um, So let's turn over to Matthew 3. And here, um, John the Baptizer is going to talk to us. Okay, uh, Matthew three seven. John the Baptizer. Matthew three seven says, "But when he, John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers.'" This is. Not part of the seeker-sensitive movement here. <laughs> you, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Okay, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abram as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees... Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He just said, you know, you Jews are no more than a box of rocks. That's what he basically told them. I, I can get Jews out of rocks. The Lord can. You're a synagogue of Satan. You're, you're not real Jews. You go to Israel, there's rocks everywhere. Okay common okay it's just rocky ground you're not real jews okay you're you're nothing more than a box of rocks all right bear fruit in keeping with repentance but they lied okay um we know about the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience galatians 5 things that we should be producing we just read this to you out of Acts 17. But the Jews, and there, we can find this numerous places, but the Jews were jealous and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble. So they start with jealousy. Is that part of the, is that in, the, in Galatians 5? It's on the first half of Galatians 5, not the fruit of the Spirit half. The Jews were jealous, taking some of the wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And we see this numerous places where the Jews raised up a rabble. They were liars. They were antagonistic against the church and did whatever to ruin the 
the going forth of the telling of the gospel. And then he goes on in our text, he says, I will make them, the synagogue of Satan, come down, bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. I don't think we should think of this as worship, just a time and a place where this will take place, okay? Um, Possibly the great white throne judgment that will take place. Um, One day the people are going to acknowledge that the Christians were right. A couple verses on that. Um, Isaiah 60, let me read these to you. Uh, You don't know this one probably, but the sons of those who afflict you shall come bending low to you and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion, or the permanent capital is what that means, of the Holy One of Israel, Zion. So, sons of those who afflicted you. And then the other one, you know this, Philippians 2.10. So that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so there is a day coming, and they will bow down. Okay, and apparently it's going to be in our presence. And they will learn then that I have loved you. For this, I just had this quote from Elizabeth Elliot. If you listen to her, she says this in every one of her once she was on the radio ministry. I think uh, she takes two verses and kind of combines them. But it says, "I have loved you with an everlasting love, and underneath are the everlasting arms." Just think about those really sweet words to hear that. Just that that's the Lord loves us, you know, and we're in his arms. They will learn that I have loved you. Okay, in our text, now we'll move on to verse uh, 10, 310. It says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance or perseverance uh, in the NASB, I think. And the definition of that, patient endurance or perseverance, is cheerful or hopeful endurance. Consistency, enduring, and the word patience. And I think, how am I doing with this cheerful or hopeful endurance? Am I cheerful? (laughs) You know, we're waiting for the Lord to come back. We see all this stuff going on around us. It's horrible. We see our country just going, you know, from where it's been, and it's very disturbing. And yet, we're told to be patient. Am I doing that in this in this manner here? We're cheerful and hopeful. I should be, because I got great things in store. <laughs> I'm a child of the King, you know. I have eternal life, and I really should be seen as cheerful and hopeful. Uh, that should be a difference that's that's in me. How am I doing? Because you have kept my word. You have kept my word. What did Jesus say about perseverance? He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. What did he say about that? Well, there's two verses I found that Jesus was speaking of, patient endurance. The first one is in Luke 18, and you can go if you want. It's the parable of the sower, and you'll recognize this, I think. Luke 18, 15, it's the fourth soil, the last one. As for that in the good soil, the seed that falls in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. 
Okay, they bear fruit with patience. So that's something he said about patience. And the second one, he said in the Olivet Discourse in Luke, we get it, and it's very short, Luke 21, 19, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. By your patience, by your cheerful and hopeful endurance or perseverance, you will gain your lives. The last commendation is that this church kept the word of Christ in patience. So perseverance while bearing fruit and persevering to the rapture. That's kind of where we're at. We need to be bearing fruit and just continuing on till the Lord comes to get us. Or we die, whichever happens first. All right, continuing on in verse 10. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So let's work on the definitions first, okay? The hour, okay? What's that mean? The definition in the Greek is it can be literal or it can be figurative. And it says the day or the hour, the instant or the season. We're probably looking at the season here. And it's used this way in uh, John 5, 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Well, that's clearly a future thing. It hasn't happened yet. But the hour will come when the tombs will be open, right? And go to this resurrection of judgment. So it is used as a season in this case. Okay. The next definition I want to look at is trial. I will keep you from the hour of trial or testing, depends on your translation there. In the Greek, it is the putting to proof, the putting to proof by experiment for good. Okay, you're going to prove something to, by testing it. They tested uh, SpaceX the other day, and they ran all 33 engines to see if it was good. Tested to good. See if it's going to work. Or the second definition that it could be is experience of evil. Okay, and I think that's what we're really talking about. How will they respond to evil? Will they repent or reject? Does that make sense? Just say it clearly, I think this is talking about the rapture. <laughs> and all the commentators I have think it's talking about the rapture. Okay, so let me just state that right out. The hour of trial is the seven-year tribulation. Quite sure of that. That is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Okay, so it can be a period of time, like we saw in John 5. It can be a trial, it can be an experience of evil. And how are we going to respond to that? Okay, uh, the other words in there are that would apply here would be adversity um, as well. And then to try the whole world. And I think you have trial in your NASB, but it is actually a different word than the first trial. Okay, this, the second trial that you have there. And it means to test objectively and scrutinize, examine, prove, assay. Okay. 
you're going to check that out. And the verse I have for this is 2 Corinthians 13, 5. He says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. Okay? So, it's a, again, it's a scrutinize, a testing, a looking, examining yourself. Okay? So, when we look at this here, I will keep you from the hour, it's sometime in the future, okay, of trial or testing, and you're going to be tested under evil circumstances, and you think that when the rapture takes place, and the church is gone, and the Holy Spirit in the church is gone, this place, this world, is going to be a very evil place. And people are either going to repent or reject Christ. There's going to be 144,000 witnesses. There's going to be an angel flying over the earth, giving the gospel. There's going to be the two witnesses. And you either, in this terrible time, you either reject or, or repent. And the Lord calls over and over and over again, repent, repent. But he says they did not repent. They did not repent. When you go through the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, he says that quite a few times. They did not repent. They did not repent, even though he shows them things they should repent for. So this is a seven-year tribulation that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. That will keep you from the hour of trial or testing. Uh, let's go over to Colossians 3, 4. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, I, I think that's the rapture. I think he's revealed at the rapture, but that's me personally. Then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Go up to meet him in the air. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. That's why there is an hour of trial. Because of those things that he's coming. Okay. A um, couple more verses here. 1 Thessalonians 1.9. 1 Thessalonians 1.9. We're looking at, I will keep you from the hour of trial. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.9 For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Okay? So here's another verse. We've got 310. I will keep you from the hour of testing. It'll rescue us from the wrath to come. And then the previous one, the wrath of God is against the sons of disobedience who are still here. Okay. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5 9, just a couple of chapters away from you there. For God has not destined us to, for wrath but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, not destined for wrath. And then John 3, 36. And this one looks at it in reverse. John 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. 
But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So we're not destined to wrath. Have eternal life with the Lord. See the rapture, the separation there, those who continue on on the earth. Bible Knowledge Commentary says, let me say this first. This supports the preaching position that the church will be raptured before the seven-year tribulation starts. Okay, And then the Bible Knowledge Commentary says this about it. Christ was saying that the Philadelphia church would not enter the future time of trouble. He could not have stated it more explicitly if Christ had meant to say that they would be preserved through a time of trouble, which would be a post-trib position, or they would be taken out from within the tribulation, which would be a mid-trib position, a different verb and a different preposition would have been required. And the only way you can read this, and people have tried to mess with it, but the only way you can read this is in a pre-trib position, that the rapture takes place before the tribulation. The word ek is in there, and I wasn't going to go into all that. But So let's, let's close with prayer. Father, we're just thankful for your word and how we look through uh, the scripture here. We see so many things that fit together, and we see how down through time you've, you've just led the church and brought it through so many things, and then um, uh, you've preserved your word as you said you would. Um, now it's, it's printed in almost all languages. Uh, Wycliffe's still got some jobs to do, but it's, it's really out there and um, it's a blessing to know that no matter how man twists or turns you are sovereign over all and you are headed us in a direction and it's going to happen it's going to take place in your time and in your way and we're just we're grateful to know that we're grateful to know that the scriptures uh, show that and demonstrate that and uh, just uh, go with us now we pray in Jesus name amen